the morning of Friday, July 21st. We are in the thick of earnings season. I'm Jack Farley, filling in for Mike Ippolito, who's out. I'm the host of uh, the podcast Forward Guidance. And my guest today is Byron Gillum, the newsletter writer for BlockWorks, who's focusing a lot on crypto. In a, in a past life, Byron was an equity, equity trader, so he does know a lot about traditional finance and has that experience. Byron, we were, we were just talking, and I've I got a question that I'm going to come out hot out of the gate. What is going on with Binance in crypto? And also, how come more people in crypto aren't talking about it? Not that I have a good sense of what people are talking about in crypto, but I feel like in traditional finance, like if Goldman Sachs, you know, let's say Goldman Sachs does 10% of the flows or whatever on equity, if Goldman Sachs did 85, 90% of the flows and the SEC sued them and made serious allegations about like, Fraud, not fraud, but fraud. You know what I mean? I feel like that's all I would, if I was podcasting, that's all I would, I would be talking about, nothing else. Yet in crypto, it's like everyone wants to talk about something other than that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I mean, for one thing, there hasn't been anything new recently uh, other than some top executives leaving, which is always suspicious. You know, rats leaving the, the sinking ship potentially. Um, uh, so that's one factor. Just you know, nothing new. We're just kind of, kind of, you know, on death watch basically after the the SEC uh, filing, which was really brutal. Um, but also, you know, Binance is a, a centralized exchange, and you know, crypto is decentralized. So Binance itself isn't really crypto, uh, and crypto people at least like to think that uh, crypto can survive without uh, a lot of uh, centralized support. I think it'll be an interesting test if if Binance were to go away. Um, the question is, like as you say, like their 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 market share of spot volumes is just ridiculous. I don't I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, 80% or just something absurd. Uh, so to me, it'll be really interesting, you know, if Binance went away overnight, uh, would all that volume then go somewhere else? Would, uh, you know, I don't know, KuCoin and other, other exchange cracking somebody uh, would, would pick up all of that volume? Um, like, is that volume that has to be done somewhere? Or is that volume that just happens to happen because people are doing weird things on Binance? Um, that would be interesting to me to find out uh but yeah i think just generally uh you know crypto you know thinks that they can survive without binance just because you know crypto is decentralized and, and binance isn't it's tell, tell me about centralized versus decentralized you said you know a spot volume that's at, you know the the current current coins as opposed to future, future contracts and options derivatives um so you say binance isn't really crypto that's because it's a centralized exchange and what, what, what do you mean by that well, if you buy uh, Binance on, if you buy Bitcoin on Binance, you are just buying it from another Binance user or from a market maker on Binance, or maybe from one of CZ's own market makers, according to the SEC. Uh, you know, you're not you're not transacting on chain. Uh, so the only thing that happens is, uh, you know, the, there's something happens on a Binance spreadsheet. Uh, not, nothing is happening on the, the Bitcoin blockchain or uh, any other centralized kind of entity. Right. So, but if you say Binance isn't really crypto by that same token, pun not intended. Uh, but you know, sometimes when you you feel a pun happen, you're like, oh, maybe I did intend this. I don't know. Uh, is, is, if, if Binance is uh, not crypto, is Coinbase is not uh, crypto, is, is any centralized exchange, quote, not crypto? Uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I, any centralized exchange I would say is, is not crypto. So, you know, Uniswap is crypto, um, and, and Coinbase, I would say is not crypto. I don't know. Like these are semantics. I, so maybe you could say like Coinbase is web 2.5 and, you know, and Uniswap is web three or something like that. Um, I mean, centralized exchanges are important. Like Coinbase is super important because that's the off ramp and on ramp between, uh, you know, crypto and and the banking system. Uh, you know, crypto would not be very useful without Coinbase uh, because you would never be able to, you know, uh, off ramp into fiat, and you can't really buy anything with crypto other than other cryptos. If you ever want to use your crypto to buy something, you've got to switch it into fiat and then use fiat to buy it. And Coinbase and Binance is how you do that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the centralized exchanges are super important important as on-ramps and off-ramps, um, but I wouldn't call them crypto themselves. This might just be semantics. I don't, other people might, might consider them crypto. I'm not sure. 
Got it. I know the stock of Coinbase has been rallying, uh, you know, the, in the tr- traditional financial markets. And does it have something to do with Ripple being deemed not a security? And I, I really have not been following this at all, Byron. So, you know, for for me and our audience who has not been following this, explain it to us as if we're, you know, uh, haven't been following. Uh, yeah, it's definitely the Ripple ruling. Um, the uh, Ripple ruling was a bigger win for Coinbase, even than it is for Ripple. Um, so, you know, the, the, it was kind of a mixed decision for, for Ripple itself. Uh, the, uh, the judge declared that the initial sales of XRP, uh, were securities, they were investment contracts. Um, and that could turn out to be a very expensive thing for, uh, Ripple. Uh, they might have to pay a massive fine. I don't know, like a billion dollars or something like that. Um, uh, but the 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 same judge ruled that the secondary transactions are not investment contracts and therefore not securities, and that's all that Coinbase cared about. You know, Coinbase only does secondary transactions, uh, and assuming that Judge Torres's decision stands, uh, to me that means just Coinbase is completely off the hook. You know, uh, they've said all this time that uh, they don't trade securities, and nobody really believed them. Everyone kind of thought like. You know, you're just saying that because you have to. Um, but uh, according to Judge Torres, they genuinely are not trading securities. Uh, so really, uh, Coinbase and every other centralized exchange should be entirely off the hook um, from a regulatory perspective. Yeah. And so uh, primary is the, the person who issues the shares is issuing them for the first time. Secondary is the person who bought them is selling them to someone else. So how could a tomato... Let's say how could a, a, a strawberry? You know, you buy, I buy strawberries from the market. That's a fruit, but then I sell them to you, and it's not a fruit. Explain. <laughs> um, now that that's a uh, a lot of people have been making that analogy, not exactly with strawberries, but some, usually it's oranges because of Howie. So usually the analogy is uh, uh, is oranges and orange groves, and people have been saying uh, uh, orange groves are securities, but oranges are not securities. Um, the implication being that uh, um, XRP is not a security, but uh, actually, I'm not even sure what the what the analogy is for XRP with with uh, orange groves. But anyway, that's that was. I like the, my analogy uh, better. I have to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Howey test better. is uh, you think for the 1930s securities law of what is a security, and, and yeah. roughly it's. Uh, something that conveys economic rights that you you can make money profit from the efforts of others. I'm I'm paraphrasing in not, in some not accurate way, but that that's what you're saying when you're referring to Howie. Yeah, so I think it was 1946, um, and uh, the the way the where the analogy breaks down. Or okay, so people have been saying that uh, um, XRP is a security sometimes and not a security other times, but that's not really correct. The, the, what the judge was uh, said in her ruling is that XRP is never a security. Um, it could be part of a securities transaction. Um, so when Ripple Labs initially sold XRP to institutional buyers, um, they entered into a investment contract and that um, and so those transactions were securities transactions, but XRP itself uh, is not intrinsically uh, a security. And in neither of those examples, those initial sales uh, or the secondary sales, um, uh, XRP is not not a security. Uh, it was part of a securities transaction. The so, what's sales. the securities transaction if not if XR- What was the security if not XRP? The investment contract, the, the contract between uh, Ripple Labs and the institutional buyers. Okay, but was was the institutional buyers what were they getting other than XRP? Uh, they were getting a, a promise, either explicit or implicit. I think it was more of an implicit promise uh, from uh, Ripple Labs that Ripple Labs would do things to give value to the XRP token. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. All right, so let's let's move back to traditional markets. The S and P five hundred stocks have been on an absolute tear, to the surprise of of many. I mean, it just keeps on keeps on going. Uh, I think we're about five or four percent from all time highs. So wow, I mean, th- things change. What have you made? Have you been surprised by this rally? What have you, what have you made of it? Yeah, I've 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 been totally surprised. I mean, if you had told me a year ago what uh, Fed funds was going to do, then I would have been long banks and short tech. 
And it's, you know, obviously been the exact opposite. So even if I knew what was going to happen, I still would have gotten it completely wrong. Uh, so That's yeah, a good I, point. You're so right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't be more surprised, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, rising rates, Byron, rising rates are good for banks because they can make loans at higher yields and they're bad for tech because tech stocks, they make all their money in the future. And those are valued based on interest rates. And if interest rates rise, right. the, the future is worth less, discounting cash flow, right? Yeah, the stock market is supposed to go down when interest rate rates go up and it hasn't, um, <clears throat> which I think just shows you that just everything is narratives, basically. You know, uh, <clears throat> all of these rules of thumb, even the, you know, even the classic don't fight the Fed, uh, these all these heuristics are really just uh, narratives, and there's no you know mechanical uh, uh, way that they they get you know that they become reality. Um, <clears throat> I think one, I mean, the, the Nasdaq in particular is just incredible to me. I mean, if you if you annualize Nasdaq's performance, it was up. You know, the Nasdaq 100 was up 40 some percent in the first half. You know, if you analyze that. We're basically at 1999. <laughs> you know, Nasdaq 19, Nasdaq was up 86% in 1999. Uh, and if you analyze the Nasdaq 100 this year, like we're almost there, which is really wild to me because I, you know, having traded in 1999, like that just seems like such a wild outlier. I've never thought we would see anything like it again. And we haven't, to be honest. Like, you know, this year is nothing like 1999. Uh, but just that the the index itself has had uh, that, you know, a similar kind of move is just really astounding to me. Yeah. So, so Byron, I, when did you join the, the investment business? You said you were trading in 99. Were you, were you trading in 97, 96? Like, when did you sort of 94. start? Nine, 94 is my first year. Wow. And that was really, I mean, so you, you really saw the entire bull market start. What was the psychology over, over that period? Uh, I mean, it was just, you know, it was just the FOMO psychology, you know. Well, I mean, there was there was a huge amount of skepticism the the entire way. Uh, you know, people were, you know, just very dismissive of of tech stocks. Um, and, and, and so in the '95, you're saying you know there were old old men with with bow ties who were going on TV saying, this, "You got to buy bonds. You got to buy." This this copper stock that's trading at a nine price to earnings ratio, you can't buy this, and then the, you can't buy this tech stock, and then of course you know Microsoft goes up twenty times, and uh, yeah, you know even like even when Microsoft, I mean Microsoft was a little before I started, but you know like even when Microsoft IPO'd, it wasn't like a big, you know it wasn't a big thing. It wasn't it wasn't that obvious that Microsoft was going to be this this huge winner, and there wasn't any real like frenzy for Microsoft. Um, the dot com bubble really kicked off with Netscape, which I want to say was like was that like ninety seven maybe um, I, I forget the year exactly, uh, but I think Netscape was up like eighty percent on its on its you know first day of trading, which nobody had ever heard of at that time that was just a uh, you know so that that's that's that was like the starting signal the firing gun for the entire dot-com bubble yeah and, and, i mean you made a comparison to, to 99 if you annualize the nasdaq those are the, the the uh annual return for the for the year but from 99 you had so many years before of consistent uh, high returns whereas last year it, it was quite bad for the nasdaq so uh, I mean, normally, things the, the process is you emerge from a recession or from a, a period of, of bad returns, and it's get it starts out slow. It doesn't it doesn't go from falling to a, a manic bull market. And I don't I don't think we're at mania yet. Or I, I mean, I I don't know. You you tell me, but it just yeah. I mean, how how extreme do you think the sentiment is, and and can it last? New, new, also, also, I, sorry, just another question of, are we in a new bull market? <laughs> um, okay, so I guess, I mean, the bull case is that, uh, yeah, like you say, we're only just getting started. I don't think we're, I don't think we're in any kind of a mania at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it's a mania, it's like a really weird one because it's basically like, you know, Apple and Microsoft and Google and, you know, these are giant companies that make tons of money. So, you know, Apple, Apple going from expensive to very expensive, like that's that's not a mania and that's not a bubble. Yeah, and that's typical for coming out of a period of bad returns of the large, reliable, stable, trusted companies lead the way. Like in 
March and April of you know April of 2020, May of 2020, it was Microsoft, Apple. It wasn't the speculative stocks or even the oil stocks that those came later. Yeah, uh, yeah, like AI kind of feels like a bubble from a sentiment perspective, but not from an investing perspective. Because like, what can you do? All you can buy is is Nvidia and Microsoft, basically, right? And that's like that's not the makings of a bubble. Um, I read this week that. Uh, Y Combinator that 35% of their uh, new uh, entrants are AI companies or AI related. When those all start going public, that could be yeah. mania. That could be like, then you could start thinking like, okay, and you know, if they're all like doubling and tripling, then you can think like, okay, we're, we're getting close to, to a top. Um, I'd be surprised if we ever got there. Like mark, markets are different than they, than they were in, you know, 1999, um, there was just a lot, like uh, you know, companies stay private longer now. The the mania kind of happens in venture capital and 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 private equity, and I'm not sure it even ever makes it to the to to listed equities. Um, but you know, if we had a mania, then yeah, it would do. Uh, but it's I I don't think we're anything close to that right now. Sorry to interrupt. Wanted to let you know about Blockworks upcoming crypto event, Permissionless Two. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September, 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are gonna be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 30% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE30. That's GUIDANCE30. Thanks, let's get back to the episode. I think we had a, a mania in like 2020 and 2021, but I, I see what you're right. There's there's more room for manias to develop in other asset classes, pri- private equity, real estate, obviously private privately traded, and then venture capital. The valuations can creep up higher, long higher for longer uh, before they have to go on onto the I- IPO. You know, Uber can can become a 60 billion dollar company and then IPO. It doesn't have to IPO at a smaller valuation. So. A, a pessimistic, uh, skeptical view is like the, the markets have become kind of a dumping ground for venture capital, uh, and that the, the mania happens before a company goes public, not after. Yeah, I mean, it could it could happen again if there's you know if there's huge public demand for AI stocks, then then you know companies will start raising capital that way. I, I would guess, um, but you know we had we had one IPO this week, Oddity, and it was up forty percent, which is pretty good, um, but you know that's the first one in a long while. And if it was, if we were really getting towards bubble territory, then there'd be one of those every day. You know? Yes, definitely. I mean, you look at SPAC deals, you look at IPOs, we nowhere close to the level of, of transactions. Yeah, uh, SPAC, yeah, SPACs are good. They were like multiple SPACs listing every day for like a year. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're nowhere like that in the, in the AI bubble. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right when you said that the sign of a mania and a sign of a bubble that's about to pop, of the, it can't get more manic, it can't get more bullish, is not where we're at right now. Where Nvidia is going up and you know the valuation does it not make sense? Okay, maybe whatever. But it's a real company. I, I feel like yeah, when the sign of a, a bubble that's about to pop is when you have all of these speculative companies IPOing and going public, and they don't go up, and they actually start going down, even as sentiment is very bullish. Yeah, also the metrics like uh, like you know Microsoft is expensive, but it's like thirty eight times earnings. You know, even in, Nvidia is I don't know what's what's the forward multiple on Nvidia. It's probably only like sixty times earnings, right? Where you know when you get to a, it's not a bubble until you start doing multiples of eyeballs and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. So I've been following. Uh, you know, earnings seasons happened. Banks have been. I've been following a little bit of the banks. How much have you been following the banks and? Uh, if you haven't been following that much, like, well, uh, do what? What questions would you have for me? Maybe. Uh, I mean, I've been following them more than I normally would because banks are usually the boringest sector that you could possibly pay attention to. And as a trader, like, you never paid attention because you knew, you know, like, if interest rates went up, they would make a little bit more net interest margin. If you know stock markets were going up, then investment banks would do well. Like, you knew what the banks. You knew whether the banks were having a good quarter or not, so you didn't have to pay attention to their earnings. This one was a lot more interesting. There was a lot more differentiation between small banks and big banks and, and investment banks. Um, uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that 
you know, the stock market is up as much as it is up. And Goldman reported like a 4% return on equity or something like that. Um, which is, again, that's like, that's not a bull market. If it's, you know, if we're, in, if we're in a bubble, the investment banks would be, we would be making a lot more money. Um, the, yeah, very true. And, and just to explain that for the, for the audience, uh, when investment banking, you're raising money for companies, so doing bond deals, but also raising equity. So, you know, doing all these deals for these speculative companies that have no reason to be public. Actually, there was a, a company that went public in 2022, and it was, uh, uh, you know, De Goldman did did the deal, and they issued this horrible, bullish press report on them that was like, in 2030, they're going to be they'll be they're trading at three times or you know ten times 2029 EBITDA. Uh, which is just just a ridiculous thing. Um, so, but yeah, so earnings are down. I actually, think investment banking revenues maybe they're slightly up from 2022, but they were bad in 2022. Of course, the the heyday was 2020 and 2021. Um, yeah, so Goldman's uh, uh, return on equity was four percent, but they they took a lot of hits because they were writing down all their business units that failed. Uh, they they you know they tried to get into uh, consumer lending. They tried to have you know like. Uh, having c- c- deposits at, at you know, in the same way you go into Bank of America, like you go into uh, Goldman Sachs, and that didn't work. I think it, it hasn't been working for a while, and they've been losing a lot of money on it. But you know, in accounting wise, this is when they this is the quarter they chose to took a hit. So if you look at you know return on equity, look at a chart, it's going to look like a qu- crash. Whereas really, really, the business has been bad for a long time. So like you should you know depreciate or, or amortize that loss like over all the quarters, not just this quarter. You know. I think the stock market does that. Like the stock hasn't done very much, so I think uh, yeah, you can you can just look at the stock and and see what that's 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 what people are assuming. I know. I guess my question to you would be uh, on the regional banks. Like it seems like the seems like they've weathered the the mini bank run, which turned out to be not much of a run. Um, I guess the uh, deposits are stabilizing, although a lot of them are having to pay up with broker deposits and stuff. Uh, so I guess my question to you is like, is this, is it, is it over? Or are we, you know, or is it back to normal or uh, is there still shoes to drop? Yes. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say your characterization is accurate and there's so many regional banks, you know, if I look at five of them in depth, there are, hundred that I, I didn't look at. So I'm obviously been missing stuff, but I'd say the general trend that I've been seeing is deposits have been going back up after after if they you know, were leaving some for, for the regional banks that have issues. A lot of community banks and uh, you know, small commercial banks, they, they don't have any issues whatsoever. So it's not the availability of deposits, it's the cost of deposits. And those costs of deposits have continued to rise as you know, risk-free interest rates have, have risen. Uh, but their net interest margins They've gone down, but it's it's been bearable, you know. And what really stuck out to me is credit so far has performed. Now, the whether you know whether banks book losses on, on credit has to do with whether they book the losses. Like it's it's all made, you know, they're, what they're saying. But um, I mean, pe- sounds like people are people are paying off their their loans. And in the commercial loans, commercial real estate loans, you're not seeing any issues. Now you could have a, a Building that's being valued at three hundred million dollars. That if they had to sell it, they could they couldn't get ten percent of that, and the loan is still being valued at par, and they're still paying because it was based on a low interest rate. So I feel like a lot of these you know doomsday warnings about commercial real estate uh, they could be true, but we're not seeing them in the bank earnings, and I think bank earnings are super lagging. Um, so yeah, the broad trends is deposits have stabilized, money for you know inflows back into the banks. But the cost—it's about the depo- uh, deposit cost and how that impacts impacts net interest margins. And broadly across the board, net interest margins are down, but they're down from you know uh, last quarter or two quarters ago. And those were unstable because those were a time when they could make the loans at the higher yields, but there was a, a, a delay between when you know risk-free interest rates went up and how much they would have to pay out in in deposit costs. So yeah, I mean, I think it's stabilized. Your question of is it over? I, I don't know, and I, I don't. I don't think anyone knows, but it, it looks it looks pretty stable. I, I'll say that it looks pretty good if credit, you know, miraculously continues to be. If we don't have a recession and credit credit losses are uh, you know very low, continue to be very low, it's looking good. Um, but I don't know how much more resilient this economy can be. Um, I mean, I, I posted about 
Bloomberg in October had a 100% chance of a recession from its its models over the next year. And the economic data so far has really out, outperformed that. I mean, how much of that outperformance is due to the price of oil falling? So, you know, people, it's basically every, everyone in society like gets a huge raise because they pay less at the pump. Um, I mean, oil, you know, oil went from, uh, gas went from seven bucks to, to four bucks, three bucks. Like it can't, it's not going to go negative. You know what I mean? So I don't know, but a lot depends on the economy. I would assume that credit will be fine because, you know, unemployment's 3.6% or something and GDP is still growing and corporations are still profitable. Um, I guess my question though would be, uh, you know, banks are presumably lending less. Like if you're paying 5% for a broker deposit, you're unlikely to want to, you know, uh, make a fractionally backed loan to somebody, right? Um, so like, do you think that's going to, impact the economy and is that like the long and variable lags that we've been waiting for and how much of an impact do you think that'll make so a, a few things firstly yeah the unemployment rate is low so individual small businesses paying off their, their loans those delinquencies you know are, are, are low I think there are a lot of loans that are collateralized so collateralized by commercial real estate multifamily office collateralized by a car and car loans and those Honestly, have like a lot to do with the collateral values, maybe even more so than the the un- unemployment rates. And like, if you look at auto delinquencies or, or net charge-offs, they're actually down for Ally, for um, Capital One. Where I think of Capital One as only a you know a card company, but they make a lot of auto loans. And their the delinquencies are actually um, not delinquencies. Uh, net charge-offs are actually down just because used car values have gone up from uh, the beginning of the year to now. So it's it's really tied with the the, the collateral values, uh, as well as the unemployment rate. And you're, you're absolutely right on the unemployment rate. And the, the second issue is they, they, they want to make more loans. If, if deposit costs are high and interest rates, you know, went from deposit costs went from zero to 5%, I actually think banks want to make more loans, not fewer, because they need more 7%, 8% loans. So to replace the 3%, 4% loans they made, you know, in 2020, so that their book can reprice, so that their net interest margin. So I think it's like they want to make as, long, as many loans as possible. Uh, it's I think the, the uh, limiting factor is one the availability of uh, good borrowers, and two maybe more importantly is um, uh, capital ratios. And th- this is really only a trouble for for banks that like have been in the news for for having issues. So so far. But uh, banks, you can't get too big. And if their deposits are leaving the banks and they're replacing them with borrowings, like, oh, they placed a 4% deposit cost with 4% FHLB or 5%, you know, Federal Home Loan Bank or, or Bank Term Funding Program, that may be similar from the cost perspective. But actually, I, actually, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. But like, it's but, <laughs> banks complicated, man. Um, I, I, I think that banks can't get too big, and like if they, uh, if their equity has been damaged, then they, you know, their their leverage ratio will get too big. I think. So, if higher rates are not discouraging banks from lending, then like, do the Fed interest rates have they mattered at all? Like, is that our is as inflation? Like, okay, I'll put it this way, like. To what? How much credit does does the Fed get for uh, disinflation? I th- I think a lot, and I, w- I want to w- walk back with what I said. So, I, I think that uh, the fact that you have to pay more for your deposits actually should make you want to make more loans. But banks have been pulling back on on credit, and I think that's because ah, I know I know what it is. Deposits. The, the quantity of deposits affects, if, if deposits are leaving the banks, uh, then banks will get you know, uh, more levered and they would want to make fewer loans. But if, if it's only the cost of deposits going up, then I actually think they want to make more loans. Um, so it's the difference between the quantity of deposits and the cost of deposits. Right. So there's less deposits and more money sitting around in the reverse repo facility or something? Yes. But that actually has been declining. The amount of money in the reverse repo facility has been draining, something Joseph Wang has been talking about for over a year. It's finally happened. 
uh, uh, deposit people money market funds are buying more treasuries, and so they're taking money out of the reverse repo facility and buying more treasuries, and that has to do with supply and demand and. Uh, just a, a lot of supply being issued by the treasury, so there's no longer uh, you know, a, a lack of collateral, so that treasury yields are actually slightly above risk-free interest rates in reverse repo facility rather than below. So now there's actually a lot of incentive for you know, money market funds to make more money if they buy treasuries rather than reverse repo. So that's actually been, I guess, a, a good thing for liquidity. And again, it's like, do you say because reverse repo facility is declining? That's the re aha, that's the reason why we have a a you know bull market in stocks. I don't know. No one knows. Yeah. What What do you think about liquidity, Byron? Are you a believer? Or are you not a believer? Do you feel it in your bones, or are you skeptical? Uh, oh, like 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 Fed induced liquidity. Yes, yeah, level of bank reserves, reverse repo, TGA, Fed balance sheet, that type of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. That doesn't. It doesn't feel like that stuff has mattered. Like you know, everyone was was so terrified of QT and. Like, I don't even remember the last time I heard QT mentioned, like it's still going on, right? <laughs> like they're still, yeah. they're still running off the balance sheet, but I've like, you know, it, does, it doesn't hardly get a mention now. Um, and stocks are back near all time highs. And the, the subset of stocks that were supposedly the most sensitive to liquidity and Fed doing things have, is, has been what's leading the stock market. So I don't, like, I've, just doesn't feel like it makes any difference. Yes, and I think that the volume coming out of the reverse repo facility has been offsetting QT, but the bull market start the like stock started rallying well before that. Uh, so I mean, are you going to say stocks anticipated their forward look? I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy how how much the narratives change based on the price and crypto, the most liquidity sensitive asset of all. It's doing well. I don't know. I don't know if you'd characterize it a bull market yet, but I mean, what's the price of Bitcoin has like doubled since it's bottomed in November, right? Uh, I don't think it's quite double. I think it's up like eighty percent, <clears throat> but it's you know coming off of a very low low. It's it's a lot. You know, uh, crypto is a lot further from its highs than than stocks and, True. or you know the tech stocks that they are sometimes correlated to, uh, and they've been very sideways lately. Uh, so it's yeah, there's not. I would not call it a bull market in crypto at all. But what are the narratives like in crypto? And I'm somewhat surprised that the sentiment in crypto is still so, so kind of gallows humor, bearish, given that it's 80% from the from the lows. You know, I mean, an 80% improve, you'd think that improves sentiment somewhat, right? Or is it just everyone's cost basis was Bitcoin at 60,000, so... Yeah, I think yeah, just taking the percentage from the lows is is uh, not giving you an accurate uh, reflection of of sentiment or what's happening. I don't think um, the question on narratives is a good one. I think we we're kind of we're kind of in need of a new narrative. Uh, you know, we had the NFT narrative and that that popped, and we had the DeFi narrative before that, and there's not much happening in DeFi. Um, so I mean, yeah. there's not much happening in DeFi, but but you love DeFi. You're you're a DeFi guy, right? Uh, I think DeFi is super interesting, um, but it hasn't really found a real world use case as of yet. Um, that is kind of maybe maybe if there is a next narrative it's people are hoping that it's real world assets um, um coming on chain um but you know DeFi now is still just you know you know different ways to leverage and trade more cryptos um it's just you know crypto is mostly for trading crypto at the moment mm -hmm. um, and DeFi is mostly over collateralized lending which nobody really needs unless you know you've got some Ethereum and you want, if you, you know, you've got some ETH and you want to leverage up and buy more ETH, then you can take a, you know, you can take an over collateralized loan on your ETH and buy more ETH. But that's, you know, that's not really world changing. That's, um, that's not the new decentralized financial system that, that we're hoping for. But I think, you know, it's the, the bull case for crypto and DeFi in particular is that we're just still building out the infrastructure rails that it's, you know, it's not 1999 in, in, crypto the 
the tech stock equivalent would be like 1992 or something, you know, when HTTP was still being built or, or, or something like that. So um, I think the bull case is that we're, we're building the infrastructure rails and we don't really know what they're going to be used for yet. Um, I think the next narrative should be uh, AI uh, because, you know, uh, AI bots are going to want to be paying each other autonomously or getting paid by humans for services that they that they provide. And AI bots won't be able to open bank accounts, right? So uh, crypto seems like it's a it's custom made for the the coming economy of autonomous AI agents. Um, so I think that could be a, a a really good narrative, but that's you know that's a couple years away still probably. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. And what was that look like? I, I understand the narrative of, oh, it's not, we're not a crypto company, we're an AI company. It's, it's a rebrand. I understand the, the PR that, but in terms of actually on the ground, what does that look like when AI is, is all within crypto and... You know, I'll just give you an example of, I think on the online poker world, there, there used to be a time when there were a lot of recreational players on there. And I'm a recreational player, you're a recreational player. Rec- uh, it brings on other recreational players. They all feel safe. But then like all the pros came on, all the sharks, and they started beating, you know, all the fish like like me. And then there were poker bots. And so you go on, you, as a recreational player, you'd go on and you'd be on a six-person table with five other bots. And, it, you know, this is no fun. I'm losing all this money. And then no recreational plays on and the ecosystem kind of goes out. So... Is, is that a worry of if, if human beings who you know, aren't professional crypto traders go on in crypto, they're just going to be kind of uh, uh, moved around and, and lose money to all these uh, sort of uh, front running algorithms? Yeah, that's probably the case already. I think crypto is probably mostly algorithms already. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, but no, I was thinking more of like, uh, you know, if, if autonomous AI agents start providing services that people want. Uh, then people are going to have to pay for those services in crypto because AI agents are not going to have bank accounts. Um, so that's going to uh, oh oh that's going to bring people into the space and give them a reason to open a digital wallet and buy some crypto and learn how to move it around. Um, and you know, ultimately, it could you know it could if you're able to actually pay for services with crypto instead of using, you know, instead of having to on and off ramp, like we were talking about earlier, instead of having to go through a centralized exchange to, you know, switch your crypto into fiat and then pay for the service in fiat. uh, You know, if you can just pay for the services directly with crypto, um, then that that's a whole different story than, you know, people like you might want to start getting paid in crypto. You might just leave your money in crypto and never on and off ramp it. Um, so then, then you can get more of a, a vibrant economy, and then uh, the infrastructure that uh, DeFi is currently building will will have some uh, real use cases for uh, mainstream people to use instead of just speculating on crypto. What do you think is more likely over the next year, two years, like a, a strong bull market in stocks or a strong bull market in crypto? And do you expect that they'll be correlated as they have been, uh, you know, over the past few years? I think they'll be less correlated than than they have been. <clears throat> um, if I had to bet on one of those two, I would probably take stocks at the moment. Um, so crypto had its everything rally in like 2020 and 2021, where things just went up because they were crypto. Uh, uh, tech had their everything rally in 98, 99, where things went up just because they were dot, there was a dot com at the end of the, the name of the company. Um, but I think you only get one everything rally. 
basically. You know, so in the in the tech sector, the subsequent rally from whatever it was, 2005 to 2015, or I don't know, maybe 2008, whatever you know, however you want to date it. Basically, the Fang rally. Um, you know, that was based on real earnings. That was based on on new business models that were enabled by the internet and uh, Facebook and Google. Uh, and Amazon making, you know, you know, making huge amounts of revenue and building incredibly valuable uh, businesses. It was val- so, valued by fundamentals. It was justified by fundamentals. Yeah, yeah. It might, you know, you could argue about the valuation, but there was, you know, there was real earnings behind behind the the tech rally that followed the dot com bust. So I think sometimes people fall into the trap of assuming that, you know. Every bust is always followed by the next rally and the next mania, and you just have to wait around for it. Um, I don't know if that's really the case. Like, I think you you get one everything rally and or one everything bubble, and we've had that in crypto. And for the next bull market, it's going to have to be something more substantial than that. Isn't it just in? You, I think we had an everything bubble in stocks in early twenty twenty one. Um, maybe didn't compare to '99, but in in some ways, I mean, you know, in '99 you had, oh, this is a giant bubble. It's a hundred million dollars. I mean, you had companies that were telling you you wouldn't, they wouldn't make a dime in revenue until 2026 at uh, much more than 10 billion dollars going public. I mean, you had like you know, uh, an oat milk stock being valued at like billions and billions of dollars. Um, I, I think there was an everything bubble in stocks in 2021, and also in crypto. Isn't it kind of this, it's a cyclical gyration from extreme optimism to extreme pessimism, from from you know the the valley of of fear to the the peaks of uh, of of greed. And everything rallies in crypto when it's a crypto bull market, and everything doesn't do well. And there's beta, obviously. You know, Bitcoin is going to outperform the speculative microcap coin in a bear market, or you know, it will go down less. Uh, but 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 yeah, I mean, I think crypto is. I mean, 20, 2017. 2014, 2017, 2021. Like cryptos had more than just one. That's fair. Yeah. So maybe maybe 2017 and 2020 were both everything rallies. Maybe. You know, I only I've only really been paying attention to crypto for a couple of years. So uh, yeah, maybe I, I maybe I should I should be uh, a little more cautious with my takeaways. Um, but I don't know, like 2017, like crypto was so tiny. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, the IC, IC the ICO boom was definitely an everything rally. So yeah, so maybe they had two. But everything. you're right; it was short lived. Whereas this one was was a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, the ICO rally was just the, the ICO bubble. Bubble must have been like the shortest bubble of all time. <laughs> and it was, it was like you know, it was it was shocking how quickly that that deflated. I think I think maybe like I think I suppose I would say that the. The 2017 bubble in crypto was just really small, um, and you know, 2020 it was it was more substantial. So, talk to me. Talk about narratives. About one narrative in crypto is the having the the you know every couple of years the amount of Bitcoin that's like produced by per block or whatever. I'm you know, I'm not a tech guy. Go is cut in half, and it's you know has. Typically, around a halving, that's when a new crypto bull market starts. So, I think a halving is going to be next year. So, do you think that it, do you think that that is actually a, a real signal, or do you think it's kind of like you know an inverted yield curve? Where you know, I'm not saying it's not a real signal, but it just so happens that before all these recessions, it happens. And it, it's if you have a thousand indicators, millions of indicators, there's going to be one that looks like the indicator. And Bitcoin halving is just it's just kind of random. So, yeah, it's not something I've thought much about i would just say that the sample size is really small <laughs> so i don't like how many havings have there been like four or something i'm not i'm not even sure um so I, that's a that's not really a pattern that i think you can you can bank on um and i think it gets it gets harder because you know some of those havings bitcoin was really small so it was easy for them you know it was it was easy for it to, to go up now it's got a 600 billion dollar market cap like it's harder it's harder to move a 600 billion dollar market cap than it is a you know you know 1 billion or whatever it was for the for the first couple of them um so yeah, i would be i would be a little bit skeptical of, of that narrative i also don't think that i don't i don't think that i think that bitcoin and the rest of crypto will probably be less 
correlated than it has been previously. Like I kind of think Bitcoin is going to do its thing as a store of value and a, you know, potential reserve currency for people. Um, and then the rest of the rest of crypto is going to have to, you know, develop some, some more utility and some, some different narratives. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I kind of feel like the next big crypto rally, you know, Bitcoin will not necessarily lead it. Bitcoin will kind of do its own thing and, and the rest of crypto will go in a different direction, maybe. Got it. Well, Byron, obviously people uh, should check you out on Twitter at bgillum1982 and uh, pe people should read your excellent news. I mean, you're a, a fantastic writer and, and thinker about markets. We'll leave a link. Uh, better in the better than I am at talking for sure. <laughs> um, and just final question is, you know, I, I, Byron, I know two things. Number one, I know you put a lot of faith in people's ability to predict the future macroeconomic economy. And number two, I mean, whenever someone tells me inflation is going up, down, economy, I, I always, I know that they're always, always right. Um, and two is, is that you follow follow it really closely. But yeah, where are you on this whole soft landing, hard landing uh, economy? Uh, I mean, I think we've already soft landed, right? Like, I don't really know, like, what else are we waiting for, right? And I, I, I feel like the, I feel like we've exited the pandemic, you know, economy, and we've done it without going into recession. So I think that is already a soft landing. And then I feel like, like, we're just starting something new now. Uh, like, if you were, you, I think all bets are off now, and you just have to, you just have to make, you know, you have to make new fresh uh, predictions unrelated to the, to the pandemic if we get a if we get if we get a recession in the first half of 2024 then you know anybody who's calling it in 2022 you know that's you know that doesn't count <laughs> you got to call your shots better than that <laughs> i think the price action and the economy inflation from october until now the soft landing call has been a 10 out of 10 and i, I don't think that it could have been any more soft landing than, than it was. I think it has been a, a pure soft landing. -y. But yeah, it's a question of where, where do you draw the line? Like, are you, if, if the game is over now, the soft landing lamp has, has won. But if you're going to 2024 and the game's not over, then you know, we could have a recession, inflation could reaccelerate. But I agree with you. I mean, if, if, if I say, you know, in 2016 that uh, the, the, the 10 year bond is, you know, it's headed to the 10 years headed to to four percent. Uh, and then it doesn't, it goes down and it goes down and it goes down, and it goes and then it goes to one percent, and then finally it goes to four percent in 2023, 2022, 2023. It's like it took six years, you know. If you if you make a call and it's kind of implied that it's gonna happen quickly, you can't be, oh, I have a long time horizon. It's like, well, you didn't say that when you made that call. So yeah, and that's why just with my um, you know, re reputation and your reputation, like I I don't like making calls. Like there's securities that I have a strong view on. It's going up, down, sideways. But like if if I were to share that publicly, it, let's say I'm right, people will be like, "Oh wow, Jack made a good call," and then they'll forget about it. But if I'm wrong, suddenly I'm the worst guy in the world. You know, I lost them money, and the same is true of the economy. So I I don't know. I I like being in a position where I don't have to make big bold calls, um, just because I, I feel like it's 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 a tough business. Yeah, I'm a believer in the efficient markets uh, hypothesis, uh, which states simply that um, you know not that not that everything is always priced correctly, uh, but just that uh, moves are very close to random. <laughs> it's just you know predictions are fun and narratives are fun, and I I love following it and paying attention to it and and you know trying to make some money every once in a while. Uh, but I. I, I think you know markets are just very close to random, and uh, there are very, very few people that are ever going to beat them with any kind of regularity. Yes, and also even if you if you have a thought about oh my god the stock is underpriced or blah blah blah, and then it goes up, and you didn't you didn't buy the stock, like you don't get to take credit for being right because I had a thought it was right. You know, like I'll give you an example. Meta in last fall it was you know trading at around ninety bucks. And super, oh my God, the Mark Zuckerberg, the kid, he's wasting all this money in the metaverse. The earnings are down. Who uses Facebook? You whatever. Said, you, said, you said it was cheap at the time. I, I, I did. Tell, tell me you bought some. I did, but then I, I sold, you know, sold after like a 30% gain when I was a, a you know, 40% gain. It was a 250% gain. So no. again, like that's the difference. That's why you can be right. 
But if you don't have the confidence to follow through and size it big and continue in the trade and size up as it goes, you know, roll the strikes up. Oh, you bought a hundred dollar call option, make it a hundred and twenty dollar call. You know, like that's where the real money is made. And I think, yeah, if you can be an okay investor, uh, like average investor who has good thoughts that are occasionally right. But if you want to actually make money, you have to know which ideas are good and and which ones to size up. You know, and that's why, yeah, that's that's why it's so hard to beat beat the market. And I, you know, it, in my interviews, I've I've tried to like you know every maybe five interviews or ten interviews, I like to throw out at people that, uh, and just remind people for the audience that it, it's so hard to beat the market, the S and P five hundred, and you know professionals find it very hard to do it on a long term time horizon. So like if you're doing this, like if, you, if someone's watching this, like working really hard in their job that has nothing to do with markets, and then oh I'm gonna trade stocks two hours a week to beat the market, like. With, with leverage and, and luck, short term, like anything's possible, but long term, it's just kind of a, I don't think you have a high chance of success. Uh, I was a trader for 20 years and I said so my, my takeaway is that it's just really, really hard. <laughs> yeah. And you, you traded only stocks, not bonds, right? Just stocks. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I know that a lot of people know, oh, active stock pickers and stock traders, even like 85, 90% of the professionals, you know, struggle to beat the S&P 500, underperform the S&P 500 on any, on any time horizon. But I think actually active managers in bonds have a somewhat better track record uh, of picking bonds. So like active bond funds outperform passive bond funds. And I, you know, I've, I've heard reputable people say that. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's true. They've, you know, I've like glanced through the studies. Do you have any idea on why that's the case as someone who was you know, actively trading stocks for you know, many decades? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I maybe because uh, so much of the bond market is just treasuries, and then if you're a bond, if you're an active bond measure um, manager, you're probably not going to buy treasuries. You're going to probably gonna buy some corporates or something, and then uh, you know those you're, you're you're going to gravitate towards riskier things, and probably over time, riskier things outperform. I don't I don't know. I'm just guessing. <clears throat> um, I mean, that's kind of like the the. Like what you've seen in equities, like this is a nightmare year for uh, active stock pickers because yes. nobody picks Apple, Google, and and Meta, right? Everyone everyone picks their small cap favorites that they think no one else has discovered. That uh, is such a good point, Byron, and I just really want to reiterate that for for the for the audience. So the people who you go see on CNBC, who you know a year ago or at the beginning of the year, what were they saying? I have the answer. I know this oil stock or this consumer packaged good company that's trading at 11 times earnings and invest with me because the stock market S&P 500 that's dead money you know apple there there no one has a fund where they're excessively long apple you know what i mean i mean people do uh, but if you have some some wealth management some some mutual fund value investor they're they're not overweight uh, um, apple they're not they're not they're 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 underweighted almost by definition because they know about a better stock and yeah, yeah the I'm, rally has been at the core of the market. This market has rallied from the from the inside out, not the outside in. And so it's it's really got to be one of the worst years on on record for on a relative basis for uh, the, the stock pickers. So it, it turns out it's not a stock pickers market. Yeah, yeah another, <laughs> another thing that is the exact opposite of what everyone expected. Yeah, uh, there we go. Well, l- let's leave it there, uh, Byron. Thanks again for for joining us and for everyone listening. You know, thanks for putting up for, with me uh, over the past two weeks uh, filling in for Mike. Pretty sure Mike is back uh, next week, so it should be Mike and Mark uh, uh, next week. Uh, so thanks, uh, thanks for watching, and Byron, thanks for for joining. Thanks, Jack. Forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro, or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.